If you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. Uh, we read Isaiah 44, 1 through 5 uh, at the end of last week's passage. We're going to read it again this week. We're going to read all of chapter 44 this week. Without further ado, hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he worms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. 
For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. O God, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Heavenly Father, we are thirsty. Thirsty for knowledge of you, knowledge of this world and our place in it. Thirsty for a Savior. Be with us. Quench our thirst, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. I hope you don't mind if I start today's sermon by telling you that you're an idolater, an idol worshiper. Excuse me, some of you might be thinking, but let me finish, please. First, John Calvin, everyone's favorite Reformed theologian, once said, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. Next, I would mention John Wesley, founder of Methodism, who who once said, in his natural state, every man born into the world is a rank idolater. And if that's not enough evidence, and if you haven't tuned out yet, there's the Apostle Paul who says in Romans 1, 22 to 23, claiming to be wise, mankind became fools and exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They traded the truth for a lie and began worshiping the creature, not the creator. Okay, you're thinking. I get your point. But why do you have to start here? Why do you have to be so negative? Why why can't we have the good news? And don't worry, we will get there. We will get to the good news of how God saves sinners like you and me, how he loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. We will get there. But first, we have to understand the bad news. We have to understand how much we love idols, how hard we run from God's love, how much we want an easier alternative that will never offend us. Which reminds me of one more quote from a more modern author. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And once we realize that, we're ready to hear Isaiah 44. So hear it briefly and then we'll unpack it. The one we want and need is far superior to the idols we can't shake. And he is far more astounding as well. Let's take the first look at that. Point number one, the only God who can save. The only God who can save. Verses one through eight. We looked at one through five last week, so brief recap. In 43, chapter 43, Isaiah gives good news, then bad news, then he repeats the good news in 44, one through five. 
Israel is God's servant, his chosen. He made them, he helped them, he calls them Jeshurun. What does that mean? It means upright. Despite all her failings, he calls her upright because he sees them not as they are, but as they are once he removes their sin. So he promises to relieve her thirst, to pour out his spirit so that she will, she, God's people, his bride, will gladly wear the Lord's name. To wear the name of the Lord, to wear the name Christian, simply means you know what the Apostle Paul came to know, that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So if you're ever embarrassed by what other Christians have done, just ask yourself if you're ready to have your worst moments displayed on a big screen. Christians are those who've been forgiven much. Therefore, they should love their Savior much because there is only one Savior who can save Only one God who can save. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God, no alternatives. There's only one who can redeem train wrecks like you and me who are enslaved by their own sin. Amen? Amen. (laughs) And this Savior is, is relentless in His love for us. He is the true king. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the angel armies, and there is no price that he will not pay to redeem us from our sin. We read this verse last week, Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's the only one who would go to that length because he's the only one who can. Verse 7 says, Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Only God could declare all the things that were to come because he alone is all-knowing. He alone is all-wise. He alone is all-powerful to create and carry out what he plans, what he decrees. He alone is self-existent, existing before time began. The only one who can say, fear not, and back it up. Verse 8, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. God is the only Savior who isn't selling something. Because he is everything he says he is. No fine print. No side effects. He can back up everything he says. He alone is the rock who cannot be moved. And deep down, this is what we want. This is what we need. We want certainty. We want security. In an unsafe, uncertain world. We want those things because God created us. And even if we try to deny it with a thousand false philosophies, we know this is true. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity into man's heart. So intuitively, we all know this is not how the world is supposed to be. This is not it. Something is wrong. And we might look for a thousand different explanations, but the Bible clarifies. What's the problem? We're the problem. We are fallen ever since Adam. And even the creation as a result, it groans for redemption. 
Deep down, we want to know that the world is a good and safe place. We want to know that someone can fix this. And at some point, we get the feeling, ah, I can't fix this. This is bigger than what I can solve on my own. And don't forget, that's exactly where Israel was at this time. They had problems, and they couldn't solve them. Now, there might have been people who said, no, no, everything's fine. It'll be okay. This will pass. But when the enemy is at the gate, Israel knew that David's dynasty had fallen on hard times. This was a far cry from the prophecy of 2 Samuel 23. Justice was not dawning on them like a glorious sunrise. David's house was not standing firm. The everlasting covenant did not seem ordered in all things insecure. Not as the enemy bore down upon them. Not as Isaiah prophesied about the exile that was to come. Something had to change. And Israel's thousand quick fixes didn't seem to work. And all along, God was saying, I am right here. I am all that you need. And there is no one like me. And you see, that's not arrogance. That is kindly offering his people the help that they need. It's offering us what we need. You see, he is not far from us, even if he seems like it, even if we seem like we've run to the far country. And if we would simply return to him, as it says in verse 22, then we would find all that we need and more, all we need for life and godliness. But I know the way our minds work, right? Doubts linger. Is it really this simple? And God knows that. So God is going to next dismantle all of Israel's backup plans to show her how superior he really is. That leads to our second point. After the only God who can save, we also see this. Secondly, the gods who are only good for firewood. The gods who are only good for firewood. Verses 9 through 20. To be clear, my goal is to be no more sarcastic than God's holy word, okay? God is belittling the idols, the false gods here, but, but is it really belittling? <laughs> is he making them any smaller than they really are, or is he simply exposing them for what they are? Again, Israel knows life's not what it's supposed to be. This is not what God promised. We've got war. We're going to have exile soon. The promised land itself seems like a mirage, and it's our fault. So what do we do? Who will save us? Should we turn to those false gods that the other nations worship? Would that be worth a try? You know, a little bit of God and that? Because, you know, what was an idol? Well, it was wooden stone, right? But it was really, and it still is, something you trust more than you trust God. And as Israel looked around, there were a lot of gods, a lot of idols to choose from. You know, you think Assyria had a, a national god, a moon god, the goddess of lust, the god of storm, the god of trade and commerce. Uh, Babylon would come later. They had a god of learning and writing. There were probably others. But Isaiah, God's prophet, judged idols and their worshipers very harshly, didn't he? Verse 9, all who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Idols are nothing. One of the core truths of the Bible is this. We become like what we worship. 
If you worship an idol which is nothing, then, then you'll become nothing. You might be thinking, but Matt, I, I don't worship idols. Hey, chill out. <laughs> I know I'm not perfect. I don't worship little statues. And so if that's true, then if I were to read a list of modern day idols, then none of us would feel the slightest bit of conviction or guilt, right? Because we don't worship idols. We don't have anything that we trust more than we trust God, right? Here's a list from someone else. Every one of them starts like this. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if. If what? If I have power and influence over others. If I'm loved and respected by others. If I have the, these pleasures, this quality of life. If I have a certain look or image. If I can gain self-control over this area of my life. If I'm completely free from obligations, responsibilities. If I'm recognized for my accomplishments, meeting my own standards. If I have this much money, this much financial freedom, this level of nice stuff. If my children or family are happy with me. On a similar note, Derek Thomas writes this, the most insidious are the idols we make of the things we love. D.A. Carson, similar note, he was comparing the doomsday scenarios of George Orwell's 1984 with Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, and he said this, in short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. This book, he says, talking about a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. And to be clear, I know I'm guilty here too. And probably blind to my own guilt, but guilty nonetheless of slaving away so that I can complete one of those if I just had this statements. We can serve these idols, give our lives to them, but they won't serve us back because they're powerless. Just like these ancient idols that Israel and others worshipped. And God shows that, that they're powerless in verses 10 and 11. Verse 11, Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. If you make an idol, worship an idol, bow down to an idol, you'll be ashamed because idols themselves are shameful. It's worshiping a creation, a creature that isn't God. And that is blasphemy. And it makes us an object of dishonor to our God. And again, it makes us worthless. It makes us powerless when we worship idols. Verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. <clears throat> what are idols? What are they made by? They're made by men. And when men get tired, they can't sustain the idol, the God, that they've made. Because idols have no power on their own, right? We just convince ourselves that they do. Because what are idols made of? Verses 13 through 17, I'm going to muster all the holy sarcasm I can here. 
The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man. To dwell in a house, he cuts down cedars. Or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And also he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. How absurd, right? Idols, they're just firewood. It's not good for anything unless we make it, form it, and fashion it, give our life to it. Idols are really only good for firewood to be burned up and consumed. And if we worship idols, if we convince ourselves that this thing, that thing, will give me meaning or purpose or value, then we will be consumed by that pursuit. Come angry when people get in the way. We'll be consumed. We'll be wasted away just like the other half of that log that the carpenter made into an idol. Because at the end of the day, idols are a lie, a delusion, Isaiah 41, 29 says. Idols promise but can't deliver. They promise meaning, purpose, value, salvation. Only God can give that. And again, we become like what we worship. Verse 18, they know not nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. Who is the they? This description fits both idol and idolater, says one author. It's Isaiah 6 come to pass. They have become deaf, dumb, blind, stubborn. They've become as if they are stupid and helpless. They've become like the things they worship, Verses 19 and 20, no one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall, fall down before a block of wood? He who does this, he feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Sad part is sometimes we believe our own lies. Now Barry Webb says idolatry is the worst sin of all and he compares it to a chameleon. Kids, what's a chameleon? It's a lizard that changes color, right? And why does he do that? So that he can camouflage or disguise himself, right? This is what he says. He says idolatry is like a chameleon because it disguises itself so that we are scarcely aware of its presence, even when we are most in the grip of it. Derek Thomas says, the modern idols, they're just as bad as the old ones. They demand our full allegiance, the sacrifice of our life, but they don't deliver. They're like Tolkien's ring, the one ring to rule them all that promised blessing, but ultimately consumed. <clears throat> idols are only good for firewood. Oh, but they're so tempting. If I can just give a little bit more effort, but in the end, they disappoint us. 
use us, abuse us, leave us more confused than we started. But there's hope here. Because God sometimes allows us to gorge ourselves on idols so that we can see how empty and bitter they are. Now, I am not recommending the following parenting technique, but it's, it's a good story. Once heard of some kid, he got a hold of a cigarette at age 10 or something like that. And his father's punishment was to make him eat, yes, eat an entire pack of cigarettes in the hope that his child would be so sick of cigarettes, tobacco forever, that even the taste, the smell, the look would make him want to run the other way. Again, did you hear me say this? I'll say it again. I am not recommending that parenting technique. Don't go home and say, this is what Pastor Matt said. No. But the truth is, our Heavenly Father has allowed us to taste the riches, the idols that this world has to offer. And we have all made ourselves sick in the process, haven't we? And yet he still longs to be gracious to us. As Isaiah 30, 18 says, in returning in rest is our salvation. Still, despite all we've done, there's a 900-year-old hymn that puts it this way. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, Thou fount of life, thou light of men, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled, empty, to thee again. Idols are only good for firewood. Do you want something better? Then turn to this one. Turn to the only God who astounds as he saves. That's our third point. The only God who astounds as he saves. Verses 21 to 28. Two things we need to remember. One, Israel was headed for exile, right? But exile's not the end. Chapter 43 says there will be a second, a better exodus. How is that going to happen? Hold that thought for verse 24 and beyond. The other thing, Israel flirted and then some with false gods. But God was superior. He knew it and he knew that he was what they needed. So hear the good news for idolaters like Israel and anyone else. Verse 21, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Are they idolaters? Oh, you betcha. But they were also Israel, God's chosen people. He would not utterly cast them off if they returned, if they repented, if they sought refuge in their God, then he would heal, then he would redeem. Verse 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. God will not forget, so we do not need to fear. He will forgive, he will redeem we can return safely to the one who is both holy and awesome and also loving and tender and compassionate. And when all that happens, what do you do? What can you do except sing? Verse 23, sing, O heavens, <clears throat> for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. <clears throat> we could end the sermon here, right? Good news, singing, forgiveness, good stuff, right?
But that's not quite where God ends. God whose ways are higher than our ways. Sometimes he wants to blow our mind just a little bit as he rescues us. And so it's, it's like he has one more surprise up his sleeve here, just in case we think we know all of his moves, all of his patterns, just in case we think we can predict everything he does. <clears throat> Let's read the rest of this. Verse 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Okay, no surprise yet, just repeating his promises, repeating his character. Let's keep going. Verse 25, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. Feels like something is coming, right? Maybe he's going to tell us how he is going to make a fool out of someone. Verse 26, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Starting to get good, isn't it? Yeah, that word ruins is in there, but we knew that was coming. We knew exile was coming. The rest of this is good. Jerusalem, the place where God is going to dwell in a, a special way. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. The ruins will be raised up. This bad dream known as the exile will one day be over, right? Verse 27, who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your, river, your rivers. <laughs> Got the W and the R mixed up there. God can do amazing things, right? Yes, amen. Keep preaching Isaiah, verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Hold on. Cyrus? Now, if you're asking who's Cyrus, that's okay. Isaiah's original audience probably would have said the same thing because Cyrus is a foreign king who won't be born for another hundred plus years. But as we read this, if you know anything of him, we'll say a little in a moment, you're faced with a few thoughts. One might be, how is it possible that Isaiah could predict this if this guy really didn't come around for a hundred or more years? And what we really mean when we ask that is how is it possible that God could speak through Isaiah and predict this? And the simple answer is still because he's God, because he can use flawed human vessels to report truth accurately. God can speak through men. And if you don't believe he can, you should ask yourself, is that because I just don't believe anything supernatural can happen? If prophecy seems unbelievable, then come talk to me. Happy to talk about that. But maybe that's not the hardest thing for you, the most unbelievable thing for you this morning. Because Cyrus, whom God will call in chapter 45, verse 1, he will call his anointed, a title that is often used of the Messiah who is to come, other Hebrew kings. Cyrus was a pagan idolater. And he was the one whom God would use to restore Israel to the promised land. Cyrus is the one who sent the people back home. Why Cyrus? Why does God do it this way? Why doesn't he just unravel the messes that we create in a neat and tidy way? Why does God sometimes use evil people to work good things in our lives? 
Why does God insist on confusing my stereotypes of who is good and bad, who is used by God and who isn't? Why does God allow bad people to do good things for me? Barry Webb wrote the following in 1996. He's not talking about any specific person other than Cyrus and the lessons that Cyrus can teach us. He says, God may disapprove of idolatry, but use an idolater for some good purpose. The fact that he uses someone in a specific way does not mean he approves of that person's lifestyle. We should neither stand in judgment on God's actions nor draw wrong conclusions from them. So as I take all that in, think of a few things. One, God wants to encourage us. He wants to reassure his people that he will save us from all our sin and sorrow. Secondly, God wants to humble us by showing us our sin and showing us our need of a savior. Third, he wants us to see the, the emptiness of idols so that we will return to him because he is far superior to the idols. And then fourthly, God wants, us, God wants to humble us by his wisdom through the astounding ways the astounding choices and unlikely characters that he uses to save us. You see, the message is not simply God is better than the idols, so stop worshiping the idols, start worshiping God. It's more like this. God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine according to the power at work within us. And if we think we have him figured out, oh, think again. If you think you've figured out the one whose judgments are unsearchable, whose ways are inscrutable, who is, whose wisdom is deeper and wiser and richer than you can imagine, then think again. Think again and return to him. Not simply because he's good and gracious and ready to save you. He is all that. But also return to him because he's fascinating because he's breathtaking, because he's larger than life, greater than self, lasting forever, he is much more fascinating than a wooden statue, much more fascinating than the ideal life that we might have dreamed up for ourselves. He is better and he is bigger. Come and see. Let's pray. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Be our help right now. Help us see how much we need you. Help us see how prone to idols and false beliefs and false gods that we are. Help us cling to you. And help us do it knowing that all of our guilt, all of our shame has been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Father, we long for that day when we will know that in full, when we will taste that in full. But we pray that even with a weak, limping faith, you would let us grab hold of Jesus and all of his good promises to us. Help us taste and see that you are good. This we ask in Jesus' great name. Amen.